many of you have been reading ahead and you read through Romans 4? Anybody done that? All right, raise your hand if you did it. I just want to see. All right, that's good. That's fine. Um, now, if you go to the first page, before we go to the chapter itself, I want to go to the first page and once again, uh, let's stay on track. I want us to notice the, the little acronym there on the very first page. You'll see it. It says Romans. And then beneath Romans, we notice that it's chapter 1, 1 through 17, deals with the cross. The cross is the power of God unto what? Salvation. All right? Now, you go to the, that's the R. Then you go to O, you've got chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And what is that called? The ditch. And why is it called the ditch? Because it's showing us that we are uh, all in sin, that we, it's hopeless for us to save ourselves. We'll never save ourselves. And we're going to be going into that a little bit more tonight as we move into chapter 4. So that's the ditch. And Paul spends really essentially three chapters letting us know that we're in sin, that it's not okay with us, that we need a Savior, we can't save ourselves, and that's why it's called the ditch. And Paul intended, that, it, and, and the Holy Spirit behind Paul intended, that that's exactly the way we would feel by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 20, that we would know, that we'd be saying this, what in the world am I going to do? I'm a sinner. I can't keep the law. When I try to keep the law, it doesn't work. It fails because I fail. The law is good, but I'm sold under sin and I'm going to fail. I can't, I can't live that law out perfectly. So he wants us saying, by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 20, woe is me. That's what he wants us saying, all right? But now we come to M, and here's where we're beginning tonight. Everybody say amen. The M is chapter 3, verses 21 through chapter 5. And what is it called? The road. And it's where God presents us as righteous before God. How, everybody? Through faith in Christ. Can you say with me, I'm saved by grace. Through faith. Not of my own works. But then we come to A, and the A in the, in the acronym Romans is chapter 6 through 8. And it's talking about the plan, God's plan. The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives by Christ's power within us, and that is his plan. Not just to get us to heaven, but as I preached uh, last Sunday, that we would, on, while on this earth, bring forth fruit, and our fruit would remain. Amen? All right? Now I want everybody here in this church to get that, that God didn't just save us for heaven, though I'm so glad I'm going. What about you? I'm so glad I'm going to heaven. I mean, what a relief to, to not go to hell and go to heaven. But, but, but salvation is more than that. God had a plan. And the plan is that the form, the character, the likeness of Jesus would be birthed and grown in every one of us. That we would walk like him, talk like him, think like him, act like him, love like him, be patient like him, move amongst people like him, that we would have our hearts broken over the sins of people like he was, that, that we would be like Jesus. Listen to the cry of Paul. Paul said to the church, to one of the churches that he had birthed, he said, he said, 
I am praying till Christ be formed in you. He, he said, he said I'm, I'm interceding. My heart is broken. I'm crying out. I'm wailing. I'm believing God. My number one goal and passion and desire for you is that Christ be formed in you. And in another place, he said, I'm praying that you grow into the fullness of the stature, the very likeness of Christ. When you read Paul over and over again, he's all about, church, I'm praying that you don't stay little babies in diapers, but you grow up. That you're not, in another place, to the Ephesians, he said that you're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That you're not knocked around by every false teaching. You're not deceived by everything false that comes down the road but you, you are rooted and grounded in him and you grow up into the fullness of the stature of Jesus. That was his cry. Now, his cry was God's cry. Amen? That's the plan. Not just heaven, but what he's doing with us on earth. Then the end in Romans is chapters 9 through 11, the world. And boy, 9 through 11, let me tell you, that is heavy, heavy stuff. 9 through 11 is extra strength, industrial strength theology. And when we get to 9 through 11, we're going to be in some T-bone steak. Amen? Then chapters 12 through 16 is the S, and that's the kingdom. God's name is glorified by his people living out righteous lives. So everybody say, say it with me. The cross, the ditch, the road, the plan, the world, and the kingdom. Now there you have Romans in a nutshell. Now let's go to part four, take a walk down the Roman road. And the message tonight is called Amazing Grace, How Very Sweet the Sound. Amen? Say it with me, Amazing Grace, How Very Sweet the Sound. Now, now we're going to be hanging in, in chapter, the very end of chapter three, just for a little bit. Then we're going to chapter four and we're going to finish it tonight. Now we saw last time that mankind is hopelessly, helplessly lost. How lost is man? His sin is universal. His sin is criminal. And he is culpable by his actions. We are born in sin, shaped by iniquity, and every one of us sins. Right? And that's why Jesus came. Every one of us sins. So we are, our sin is universal. Everybody sins. It's criminal. We all break the law. And we're culpable because we all sin by actions. Now, both Jew and Gentile are under God's wrath. And both will face eternal consequences of the judgment bar of God. If you don't have Jesus, there is none righteous, the Bible says, not a single one. Now, finally, just when we feel there's no hope, excuse, or way out, which is the way you feel by the time you get to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul introduces the way of salvation. Righteousness through faith is the way to salvation. God will never look at you and me and our best attempt to please him and say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, you gave that money to the poor and you're a good neighbor and you haven't gotten a traffic ticket and you really love your kids, so I'm going to declare you righteous. It's never going to happen. We will never hear the words, I declare you righteous, until we say, Jesus, forgive me. Of all my sin and come into my heart because I believe you're the son of God and you rose from the dead on my behalf. 
When you say that, when you place your faith in him, then we hear the words, righteous. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be made and declared the righteousness of God in him. Amen? So that's what Paul now is going to begin to lay out. He's giving us now an out because we're going, what am I going to do? By the time we're at chapter three, verse 20, now he's saying, so glad you asked. Let me give you a way out. It is faith. But now a righteousness from God. This is verse 21 in chapter three. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes, how everybody say it with me, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, just like great and massive doors swing on very ordinary hinges, so dramatic changes in scripture often hinge upon this one phrase, but now, but now. And after painting such a black, cloudy, hopeless picture of the human condition, now the sun is breaking through. We go, oh, there is hope for me. I'm not hopelessly lost in my sin and headed to hell. There is hope for me. And the hope is faith in Christ. God has a plan for our salvation. The first thing Paul mentions about this salvation is it is free. It is not of man's devising, but it's of God's grace. It's free. Look at uh, verse 24. By the way, that's a typo. Your uh, readout there says verse 23. That's wrong. It's verse 24. We're in chapter 3, verse 24. And here's what he says. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, you don't have to pay a thing. There's nothing you can pay. There's no currency you can pay. There's no good deed you can do. It is free. Salvation is free. It's a free gift. It is all of God and none of us. Can we say free? After struggling for centuries without success to measure up to God's standard as revealed in the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, salvation by faith alone had come and it was free. And do you know what that meant to them? Because for centuries, they've been trying to pay their way in, earn their way in, and they couldn't do it. And now they're being told by the apostle to the Gentiles, the great apostle Paul, no, listen, it's free. You don't have to do anything. Jump through any hoop, leap over any mountain, do any work, pay any price, produce any currency. It's free. It's free. It's free. Makes you want to laugh and run around the sanctuary, doesn't it? Come on. Free. It's free. Paul uses three metaphors regarding the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring home this marvelous truth. Now, the first metaphor he uses is a courtroom metaphor because he wants us to be be sure we get it. So he says, we are justified freely by his grace. Everybody say justified. Now, that's a courtroom word. The word justified comes from a Greek word that means acquitted through being declared righteous. It is a courtroom word where a defendant is acquitted of all charges. It's as if the judge looked at the defendant 
and says to the defendant who is looking at maybe a death sentence or life in prison without parole, and he's looking at the defendant and he says, acquitted. It's as if you never did anything. That's what justified is, just as if I never did it. Justified, just as if I never did it. Justified, just as if I never did it. The judge has looked at us and said, acquitted. I am acquitted of all charges. So the devil can't rightly condemn me because Christ has justified me. So the devil can't, unless you let him. He can't beat you over the head with things that you've done if you've repented of them, things that are sinful and wrong. He can't rightly just beat you over the head with the hammer of your former guilt unless you let him. If you understand what the blood has done, he can't get through the front door of your mind to condemn you. Why? Because we've been acquitted. The judge has said, free. It's as if you never did any of it. You're as clean as the driven snow in the eyes of God. Amen. I don't know what that does to you. That gives me a buzz. Amen. Amen. So he uses the courtroom metaphor, but then he uses a slave metaphor. He says, notice, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now the word redemption comes from another Greek word that means to release on payment of ransom or to purchase on the market. Now, now, Paul, moved by the Holy Ghost, is not making a mistake with words. These words are being moved on Paul. They're coming straight from heaven. And heaven wants us to know that we've been redeemed. What does that mean? That means a payment has been made on our behalf to purchase us off the slave market. Amen. Amen. Because the underlying thought here is, is of a slave market. When you use this word, payment, redemption. The subjects of redemption are sold under sin. Romans 7.14. Romans 7.14. When it says sold under sin, that means a slave to sin. How many of you, before you were saved, couldn't help but sin? The rest of you just don't understand where you were because all of us couldn't help it. We, we were <coughs> slaves. And the devil was our taskmaster. And the devil had a whip in his hand. And every single hour of every single day, he whipped over us and said, row, row the boat, row this slave ship of sin. Pull, pull, pull. Come on. And he cracked the whip. And we said things and did things and went places and thought things and became enslaved to habits. There were never the will of God for us. And every day the whip was cracked over us by the devil. And we were in the, the, the lower galleys of a slave ship, pulling the oar. And when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, a voice was heard down in that slave ship. And it said, stand up and walk away. You're free. Put down the oar. You're free. Walk out of the ship. You're free. You no longer have to row the oar. You no longer have to sin. Amen. The purchase price was the blood of the Redeemer who died in our stead. Can we just stop a minute and say, Jesus, thank you for your shed blood. 
thank you for your shed blood. Because, folks, that was the only currency that could set us free. That was the only currency that could let us go and release us from that slave ship. It was the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Today I found myself, you know, I, I was praying and, you know, every morning I've told you my habit. I, I get up and, and I grab coffee that God made on the eighth day and said, it is good. As a matter of fact, I now think he really said, it is very good. And, and I get my Bible and I go out on my porch and I open up the Bible and I begin to read it. And today I just, I, part of the reading had to do with what Jesus did for me. And I found myself when I went into prayer, because I read the word of God first because it fires me up for prayer. And, and, and when I was done with the word, I began to pray. As I began to pray, I found myself just saying, thank you, Jesus, for your precious shed blood on the cross for me. Because if you had not shed your blood for me, I wouldn't be out here on a porch praying to God and serving the Lord. No, I would be in bondage to sin, pulling those oars in the slave ship. But no, I've been set free. And so I just had a moment of thanking God for the blood. Thank God for the blood of the lamb. So he uses a courtroom metaphor. He uses a slave metaphor. And then he also used a ritual sacrifice metaphor. And what does that mean? It says God presented him as a propitiation by his blood. Now here's another word. What's propitiation? It comes from a Greek word meaning an atoning victim. And we see here a guilty person from whom the wrath of God has been removed due to one who was sacrificed in his stead. Now, how many of you ever heard of a scapegoat? How many of you have ever been somebody's scapegoat? All right. But in the Old Testament, uh, Moses directed, uh, and God directed Moses, and he directed Aaron, that Aaron would, would choose out a, a goat or a, an animal and, and would take the animal to the edge of the camp, and he would lay his hands on the head of the animal, and he would pronounce all the sins of Israel over the head of this animal. And then he would push the animal to begin walking away from the camp. And the animal would walk away, never to return to the camp, and left to himself. Never to return to the camp with the sins he had spoken over him, the animal. What's the idea? The animal became the scapegoat that carried their sins away. Now, what was Jesus on the cross? He was our scapegoat. And what did God do on the cross? The Bible says God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Same thing. The scapegoat in Moses' day was just a type and a shadow pointing down the tunnel of time when the ultimate scapegoat would die on the cross for us. And so God took your sins and my sins and laid them on his head. And what did he do? He carried them away and removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. And so when Paul uses the word propitiation, that's what he's pointing to. Now, how many of you are so glad Jesus took your sins and mine on himself and then carried them away that never to bring them upon us again, they're gone forever. Amen. 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 Well, that is wonderful. The Bible says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Jesus said this, give his life a ransom. He's using, he's using slave terminology in that one, a ransom for many. 
But here's another one, John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That one is about uh, being in that slave ship. And Jesus, Jesus said, if you believe on me, you're no longer condemned. I carried your sin away. Amen? Now, why did God have to do this? Why? Well, chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has placed faith in Jesus. Now, let me make sense of that verse for you. God sent his son to die in our stead because he's a God of justice. I had somebody call into the radio program this week. And um, oddly enough, he was from Fort Worth. And I had made a statement. And I'm talking about to every man an answer when I'm on national radio. And um, I've been on three times already this week. But I'm on national radio. And we take calls from around the country. This one came in from Fort Worth. And he said, I heard you mention that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah primarily because of homosexuality. And I said, I did say that because the Bible says it. And then he said, he said, I just don't understand how you can paint God as such a hateful God. And, and he came after me. I love that when they come after me. No, I really do. I love a good challenge. Come on, bring it, bring it. I, uh, seriously, I like it. I, I do. It, it makes things interesting. It, it gets my... BP up a little bit. And I love a challenge. All right. Um, and I love to clarify God's word. So he said, so you're, you're making him a God of hate and we don't need to hear about a God of hate, Jeff. We need to hear about a God of love that he just love. And I said, stop. I said, you're right. He is a God of love. But that's only part of it. He's also a God of holiness. Are you with me? Everyone. Because he's a God of holiness, he's a God of justice. Because if you sin in his universe, it requires justice. Because he's a God of holiness, he's offended by sin. And when he's offended by sin, when sin enters his universe, it must be answered. Now, it's going to be answered one of two ways. You're going to accept Christ and the blood of Jesus is going to cover your sins because he took the, the judgment for you. Or you're going to answer to God for your sin yourself. That will not be a good day at the office. Now, I said to him, this man, and I don't know how many were listening all across America, but I love the opportunity to make this point because America has gone soft. We've been poisoned by greasy grace and sloppy agape. We have a whole wrong concept of love. Love is not ooey, gooey, drippy. I never tell you that you do anything wrong. I coddle you and I enable you and I pat you on the back and I say, that's okay. We understand. Can't we all just get along? I just, I don't want to point anything out that's wrong in your life or in my life because that would be mean and that would offend you and we can't offend anybody. And you know what that is? That is pure 100% Pure beef bologna. That's not love. 
That's not love. No. And so I said, because he's a God of holiness, he's a God of justice. Because he's a God of justice, then judgment must come. Now, you say I shouldn't have said that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. But it could have been for anything, adultery, fornication, uh, alcoholism, uh, you name it. It could have been for, for any one of a thousand different sins, but the Bible happens to point out that that was the one. So that's all I pointed out. But I said, if, if you're right and I'm wrong, then why did Jesus come? Why do I have to repent? Because if he's a God of love and just covers all my sin and, 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 and there is no other side of God where he's holy and just and justice must come, why was there a cross? Why did there need to be a savior? Why do I have to repent of anything? Because God's not going to judge me according to you. He's just all love, sloppy agape, greasy grace. See, we got to the point in America where we don't understand love at all anymore. We don't understand love at all. We've lost the meaning of love. If I love you and I see you headed down a path that is going to ruin your life and I don't say something, I don't love you. And if I'm headed down a path of destruction and you don't come and try to help me and pull me out of it, you don't love me. We've got to get back to what love is. Love tells the truth. Love is honest. Love will, will address wrong in love. You see a little kid beginning to run across the street and there's traffic coming both ways. And you say, well, I don't want to offend him. Let him go. Are you loving him? No. If you really love him, you're terrified, you're screaming, you're running towards him to get him out. That's real love. How did I get on this? Oh, I see how I got on this. God sent his son to die in our stead because he had God of justice. Sin had to be atoned for. It could not remain unaddressed in God's moral universe. Does everybody get that? A moral God made a moral universe, and that's why we have a conscience, and that's why we feel guilty sometimes, because a moral God made a moral universe, and we're made in his image, so he made us moral creatures. God had brought a just sentence of death on all mankind, for all have sinned. But he then provided a sinless sacrifice by sending his son to atone for our unrighteousness. So you know what? The cross displays both the monstrosity of sin and the need for God to address it with finality. And you can't get more final than it is finished. What was finished? The atonement for our sin. Ah. Where is boasting then, Paul goes on to say in verse 27? It's excluded. Nobody can stand boasting before a bleeding Savior. <laughs> by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Salvation by faith destroys man's pride because we can't take credit for one scintilla of our salvation. 
Therefore, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or he is the God of the, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since verse 30, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, both Jew and Gentile, and that one God who will justify all of us through Christ by faith is the God of our salvation, the God of all men, not just the Jews. If you're a Gentile tonight, I want you to say, thank God he saved me too. Amen? Verse 30, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. We don't make void the law because on the contrary, we establish the law. How does that work? Verse 31, righteousness by faith is the fulfillment of the law. The law came to lead us to grace through faith. God gave the commandments, not so that we would obey them, but so we would see we couldn't obey them. But the commandments are wonderful. They're absolutely right. But they show me I'm sold under sin. I'm in the slave ship. I can't obey it. I fail every time. So what did the law do? It whipped us into grace and into faith. I can't be saved by my own works, so there's only one way, and that is place my faith in Jesus Christ. And what he did is imputed to me. You there? Amen. Come on. Boy, this is good stuff, isn't it? This is good stuff. Now, let's go to chapter 4. Romans 4 is the great chapter on salvation by faith alone. Many people claim to believe in salvation by faith, but they don't believe in salvation by faith alone. John Phillips writes these words. Listen carefully. This is good. The word, quote, alone, end quote, is the watershed which divides the Catholic from the Protestant, the religionist from the man of faith. And it was the watchword for the Reformation. The religionist believes in salvation by faith, but not by faith alone. Because religion always makes you have to do something, add something to your salvation, to earn your salvation. Religion always makes you and me do something to obtain salvation. So you tell me all day long you believe in salvation by faith, but I want to know, do you believe in salvation by faith alone? He believes in the value of the blood of Christ, but not in the value of that blood alone. He accepts the fact that Christ is the mediator between God and man, but not that Christ is mediator alone. He acknowledges the authority of the scriptures, but not their authority alone. Let me ask you, do you believe you're saved by faith alone? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to jump through any hoop. There's nothing you can do to make it a better salvation. Right? All right. That's true Christianity. But there's, there's Protestant churches. There's, well, the whole Catholic church believes you've got to mix works with faith to be saved. That you've got to take, for instance, communion in order to be saved. There's Protestant churches that believe if you don't get baptized a certain way, you're not saved. 
But baptism doesn't save you anyway. But that's not what they'll tell you. You got to be baptized in the name of Jesus or you got to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if you don't do one or the other, you might say, I believe in salvation by faith, but you don't believe in it alone because you're telling me I got to be baptized a certain way to get saved, to seal the deal. But you don't. Salvation, or, or rather, water baptism saves nobody. It only testifies to the fact you've been saved. Paul demonstrates that salvation is by faith alone, apart from the slightest scintilla of any work or merit of man. Now let's look at Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, this is verses 1 to 2, chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God, because Abraham was not justified by any works or he would have had room to boast about his accomplishments. Rather, Abraham was justified when he believed God by faith. Look at verse three. What does the scripture say? Abraham did what everybody believed God and it was what credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness was put in his spiritual bank account. The minute he believed God and that means placed his faith in him. Let's read the Genesis account, Genesis 15, verse 5. Then he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so will your descendants be. Your descendants, Abraham, are going to be more than you can count. If I left you here a hundred years, you couldn't count them all. Abraham, look at verse 6. Abraham did what? Say it with me believed the Lord. And what happened? He accounted it to him for righteousness. That's how he became the father of our faith. Because he's the first one in the Bible that God looked at and said, you are righteous by faith. Alone. Paul next makes the point that if salvation were something that we earned, then it comes as an obligation on God's part to give it to us not a gift. Look at verse four. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift. How many of you work today? How many of you love it when you get paid? <laughs> now, how many of you can, can, can understand that this simple thing that when, when, when you have worked, uh, you know, a 40 hour week, a couple of 40 hour weeks, and you go to get your paycheck that the, your employer is obligated to pay you he owes you, all right? Because you've worked for it. The point that Paul's making is we didn't work for anything where God was obligated to do anything for us. He didn't give us salvation because he owed it to us because we can't earn it. We can't work for it. Salvation by grace through faith is a pure gift. It never comes as an obligation on God's part. Verse 5, however, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, God didn't owe me. He didn't say, well, Jeff 
did this and that and the other. And now he's also put faith in Jesus. So I owe him part of this salvation because I owe him. No, God owes me nothing, you nothing. He's not obligated to us at all. We are saved by grace only through faith alone. David celebrated the same truth. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He said, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute his sin. Remember, the word impute means to add to your account. David had discovered a way to have his sins not only forgiven, but forgotten. Not only covered, but canceled. Mm. This is why God says through Isaiah the prophet, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I remember your sin no more. Do you know that God has self-imposed amnesia? Yeah. We think, oh, you know, God could never use me because he's always thinking about all the things I did. If you come to Christ, he's not thinking of anything you did. Now, there's a revelation for some of you. Well, if you only knew what I did, Pastor Jeff, you know God's thinking about it. No, I know God ain't thinking about it. Bad English, good preaching. God's not thinking about it. Well, how can he not think about all the things I did? Because the Bible says he remembers your sins no more. His own decision is to not remember them. God, do you remember when I went and did this, that, or the other? No. But, but surely you remember when I went and over there and did that with them and hurt all those people and this and that. God says, no. I don't remember. I'm sorry I don't remember. Why are you coming to me with this? Because my blood, the blood of my son has forgiven you. Why are you remembering it? Why are you kicking yourself over something that I don't even remember anymore? Get with the plan, Stan. The plan is God's salvation in your life and bringing forth fruit. Now, let's move along. Paul makes, next makes the point that if salvation were something, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going down to David. I, I'm behind. Let me get back up here. Next, once again, Paul addresses the kingpin of the Jews' religion. And the kingpin of their religion was circumcision because that was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Now look what he says, verses 9 to 12. Does this blessedness, the blessedness of God remembering your sin no more, <clears throat> does it come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised as well? Now when he says un uncircumcised, he's meaning Gentiles who are not a part of the Abrahamic covenant. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then <clears throat> was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then Paul says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. When did God say to Abraham, you are righteous by faith? It was before the covenant of circumcision. All right? So, and he received the sign of circumcision, verse 11, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had 
while still uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of everybody who believes, though they are uncircumcised, or put another way, though they are Gentiles, that righteousness might be imputed to them, the Gentiles also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, let me help make that a little more clear to you. The Jews had put all of their faith in this religious ritual. All right? But Paul is saying religious rites don't save, not even circumcision. Religious rites don't save. Coming to church your whole life, that won't save you. That's religious. Giving a bunch of money into the church, that won't save you. That's, that's religious. No, religious rites won't save you. I can put you in a garage for 100 years, you're not going to become a car. I can put you in church for 100 years, you're not going to become a Christian. You've got to be born again. So, so you can do religious things all day long, but they don't save you. No, what saves you? Faith alone in Jesus Christ. Paul called the teachers who said you got to be circumcised and, and you got to mix that with faith in Jesus. They were called Judaizers. And he detested their insistence that we must mingle works with faith to be saved. Read Galatians. That's what Galatians is all about. Nowadays, we still cling to the belief that we must observe certain rites or rituals in order to be saved. Some people uh, believe that belonging to a particular church, I'm a church of Christ, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist. We're the only ones that are truly saved. Everybody else is deceived. And until they become one of our denomination, they're going straight to hell. I feel real bad about it, but it just happens to be true. No, because becoming any denomination doesn't save you for a microsecond. But people believe it. Paul blows all of this totally out of the water by pointing out that Abraham was declared righteous by God when everybody before he was circumcised. Abraham was a justified man 14 years before the rite of circumcision was even imposed. Now next, Paul points out something that we're all beneficiaries of. God's promises to Abraham and his descendants were not tied to their keeping a law or a ritual or anything. God's promise was of grace to be believed and received by faith. Now, when we place the relationship between God and humans on a legalistic basis, that is, I'm earning it by jumping through hoops, we invite the wrath of God. Are you with me? If you say, forget this grace and faith stuff, I'm just going to be a good person. As soon as you say that, being a good person is going to get me into heaven. As soon as you say that, you've invited the wrath of God, not the mercy a mutual understanding of requirements means both parties have got to carry them out perfectly to avoid conflict. And failure invites penalties. So knowing the weakness of human nature as God knows it, he knows that relationship with him must be founded on something else. He remembered, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 78, 39, God remembered that we were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. 
here today, gone tomorrow. So God's plan was that we would be redeemed by placing our faith in Christ's finished work. And we're coming to the close. Let me just read. It was not through law. This is Paul writing. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promises that he would be heir of the world. But it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 14. For of those who live by law are heirs of salvation, faith has no value. And the promise is worthless. If I can earn my way there, who needs faith? Okay? Because law brings wrath. And where there's no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, because he's the father of us all. You ever sing that song in children's good? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father Abraham, and I am one of them. Some of you have been to Sunday school. Now watch. Father Abraham, he is the father of our faith. But why? Because he's the first one declared righteous by faith. And he set, he set the pattern, the, the template, if you will, of everyone after him who would be declared righteous by faith. Okay? He's the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead. The God who gives life to the dead. What does our God do? He gives, say it with me, life to the dead. How are we going to come out of the grave when the trumpet blows? Because we serve the God who gives life to the dead. How are we going to go meet the Lord in the clouds, even if we've been in the grave for 2,000 years? Because we serve the God who gives to the dead. And he calls things that are not as though they were. This incredible statement about the nature of faith, that it sees what is not yet here and calls out to something before it arrives, is referring to Abraham's belief that even though he was too old in the natural to father children, God would yet bring it to pass. See, some of you are looking at something that's an impossibility. Well, it could, it might just very well be. It's impossible to you, but it's not impossible to God. It's not impossible to God. Now look what Abraham did against all hope. Verse 18, against all hope. That means there was nothing out here that gave him hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. So without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact. Now folks, can I point something out to you? Can, can you notice with me, please? It doesn't say he denied the fact. He didn't deny reality as some teach you should do. Am I, are you reading what I'm reading? He didn't look at his body. He was 100 years old, old and decrepit, way beyond being able to sire children. He didn't look at it and say, I'm not old. I'm young. I don't believe what I see. I don't receive what I see. Did he? No, it says he faced the fact. So you don't have him denying re reality like we're taught to do in Christian science. You don't deny reality. And some people who are way off into a hyper understanding of faith. 
Faith doesn't tell you to deny reality. It tells you, even though this is the reality, God can change it. Just thought I'd throw that in free. Verse 20, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why, verse 22, it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for us, to whom our Lord uh, uh, to whom our Lord, or, or I'm sorry, to, who, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And that's chapter four. Let's stand. Well, that is good stuff. That's Bible study. Amen. Now I've got nine after. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take two questions. If Brandon wants to run and grab the mic, um, I'm trying to let you kind of be interactive on these Bible studies, so it won't take long, but let's just say two questions. Does anybody have a question about what we've taught tonight or another? Please, theological question, not a political one. Don't ask me anything political. I'm deaf, dumb, and stupid politically. I don't want to go there. Well, that went over big. No, theological question, anybody? Anybody have one? Anything I covered tonight? Anything you've always wanted to know but were afraid to ask? <laughs> Question on COVID. No. Going once? Way back there, there's one question. Here we go. All right. Hi, Pastor Jeff. Hello. I need some more clarity on what God says about homosexuality. Okay. God says regarding homosexuality, it is one of several sexual sins. Now, if you want, to, if you want the best understanding on it, it's in Romans 1. Romans 1, it is called unnatural. It's called an abomination. And um, it stands out as a little bit different, like if you go to Leviticus, when God addressed it, it's, it's, it's uh, an abomination for a, a man to lie with a man. Uh, and later it will say a woman with a woman. Um, it's singled out as particularly an abomination because it is counter to the way God created mankind. There's not a hundred genders as we're being told. Our I'm dating myself here, and I probably shouldn't say this, but here goes. There was a rock group in the 60s. They had a song called Dazed and Confused. Now, I don't suggest you go listen to it. However, if I could describe our country with three words, dazed and confused. Because we're being told now that there's a 100 different genders from which to choose. Um, and if you read the list, it's, it's, it's completely insane. Um, the Bible is clear, male and female created he them. The man was made for the woman, the woman for the man. So if you read Romans 1, you will see that not only is homosexuality called unnatural, but it's also a judgment that God imposes on a culture that rejects him. It's called being given over. 
And in Romans 1, I think it's one of the most profound things ever written, personally. So you ought to go home and read Romans 1, because it lays out the downward spiral of a society that rejects God. And there's three turning overs, all right? The first one is to heterosexual sexual sin. And and it's called defiling. God gave them up to defile themselves with one another. And the context is heterosexual. In the 60s, we had a sexual revolution. That's what it was called. But you'll note, it struck the country after the Supreme Court had outlawed prayer, had outlawed the Bible from the schools, took the Ten Commandments off the school walls, and we began to push God out. I suggest it's a turning over. A turning over is when God turns you over to the sin that you love. He turns you over. He says, you're not going to listen to me. I turn you over. Go for it. My hand is off of you. And it's a terrible judgment. Second judgment, it says they continue to reject God, and they worship the creation instead of the creator, and they refuse to worship the true and the living God. Second turning over was to a homosexual revolution. In the 80s, the homosexual revolution struck America. Gay pride uh, uh, marches, um, all the, the whole thing of uh, if, you, if you speak of it disparagingly, you're a bigot, you're this, you're that, and you're, you're the other. And our culture actually went from not only not just tolerating it, but celebrating it. Which Romans 1 verse 32 ends with describing the culture that rejects God will wind up celebrating what God abhors. So that's the second turning over. The third one was to a reprobate mind. Because they did not even want God in their thinking, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. Reprobate comes from a Greek word that means void of judgment. It means I can no longer even discern between right and wrong, good and bad. I I cannot, my mind doesn't work properly anymore. I've been turned over to a reprobate mind. I, I suggest to you tonight that a huge swath of our nation has been turned over to a reprobate mind. You know how I say that? Because they're calling good bad and bad good. Wrong, right, right, wrong. Light, dark, and dark, light. Uh, Everything is topsy-turvy. Everything is upside down. It's irrational. And irrationality is one of the signs of a reprobate mind. I can't tell what's right and wrong anymore. I'm dazed and confused. That's a long answer to one question, but I hope that helped. All right, one more. One more question? Oh, on the front row. Made it easy for Brendan. Go. I've been reading the Old Testament, and it seems, I don't know if I misunderstood it, that some kids are dedicated to God and other kids aren't. I don't know if I understood that. In the Old Testament? Yes. Well, I know the Hebrew people dedicated their children to God. Um I'd, I'd have to have a verse to know where you're going there because if children weren't dedicated, then my guess is you read something that the pagan nations did not dedicate their children to God. Isn't it interesting, though, and I'll close with this. Watch this, everybody. Um, isn't it interesting that if you walk with God and you love Christ, we have a baby dedication regularly. You want to dedicate your children to God. 
But what brought the people under judgment in the Old Testament is when they took their children and they dedicated them to an idol. And they would literally take these little babies, and this is hard to hear, but it's true. They would, they worshiped the God of Molech. And, and Molech was an idolatrous statue. And they would put fire under Molech until Molech's outstretched hands were glowing red. And they would pay, place their children in his hands. And they would bang drums and cry out loudly and, and do these chants so they couldn't hear the cries of the child. And God said, what are you doing? This has never entered my mind. But what are we doing in America? We're dedicating our children to the idol of convenience. And we, to me, our nation's gravest sin is abortion. It's our gravest sin. Now, if you've been involved in an abortion, please understand, I'm not condemning you because if you've repented, God doesn't even remember it. But we need to note that if it, when a nation forsakes God, everything goes upside down and backward. And that's what's happened with the dedication of children to idols, our own idols, instead of to Christ. Need to close. Father, thank you for blessing the, the, the people of God. Thank you for helping us to understand your word. Now, Lord, we pray your blessing on the people. Help us to grow in wisdom. And, Lord, form Christ in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We love you.